This is the last section in the book of Luke before Jesus leaves the upper room and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will begin to suffer. And he wants to let his disciples know there's a change on the way. They've been with him for three years. They've been involved in ministry. They've gotten used to having Jesus there with them. But now they're going to not have Jesus there. They're going to have to continue on with him there like we do. His presence is with us, but he is not here in person. And they are going to have to learn that. This is a new season for them. And so he gives them a little bit of a heads up. Things are going to change. It used to be like this. Now it's going to be like that. When we have new seasons in our lives, sometimes they're planned. Some of you may be planning on getting married. You're about to enter into a new season. The Lord bless you. Some of you are planning on retiring. And again, it's a new season. And the Lord bless you as well as you begin those, that, that new season. Sometimes we're forced into seasons. Seasons we would never choose. Life changes radically. A decade ago, almost a decade ago now, I lost my wife to lung cancer and it was a new season in my life that I would have never have chosen. But I went down through that season anyway. There, there's no way to change it. And when there's seasons and, and differences, there's one thing that I find that the Bible refers to as you're, as you're making a change. When the children of Israel were having a transition between Moses and Joshua, God tells them something. God tells Joshua something. And when they're getting ready to go into the promised land, that's those two major changes, two new seasons in their life, a new leader for the nation of Israel, and they're no longer going to be outside of the land in the wilderness. They're now going into the land. So here's the two promises that God gave them, one by Moses and one by that God spoke to Joshua. Joshua 1.9. And imagine being Joshua and having to fill the shoes of Moses. Imagine that. And so Joshua, God said to Joshua, have I not commanded you? So Joshua's probably feeling apprehensive. Like, maybe I shouldn't do this. And God's like, haven't I commanded you? You're doing what I said. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that's the key to transitions. Have the Lord your God with you wherever you go. Acknowledge him in all of your ways. In Deuteronomy, Moses says to the children of Israel now, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. This is the transition he's talking about. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, the enemies that they're going to be fighting. For the Lord your God is, is the one who goes with you and he will never leave you or forsake you. And then as Jesus stood with his disciples and gave them the great commission, which we are part of, go into all the nations, preaching the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all of the things I have commanded you. And then Jesus says this, it's the last verse in the book of Matthew. He says, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Even in the midst of the transition that they had going on there and the transition we're still in for the kingdom of God, Jesus is with us in all of them. So we can face any transition planned or not, knowing Christ is with us in the middle of it, even if it's something we wouldn't choose down a road, down a season we wouldn't choose. There are also seasons we look forward to and seasons we don't. We, for us, we look forward to winter. That's like the rest of the, you know, the United States, at least most of it, you know, looks forward to summer. And we're like, oh no, I've got to get through this, you know. And some of you guys just go away. And welcome back, by the way, for those of you who are back from being snowbirds, good to have you here. We're a little jealous of you, but... We made the heat. We survived. 
so I want to read this text and you'll see the transition part Jesus is talking about. He's going to say, when I sent you out before, he had sent out 12 to go into cities two by two because he couldn't go into all of the cities. So he sent them out as a representative to, for him. He also sent 70 out and he told them certain specific things when they went. And, and so he, he, re, he refers to that here. So in Luke 22, 35, and we're going to read 35 through 38. He said to them, when I sent you out without money bag, knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this, uh, that this which is written must be accomplished in me. So Jesus now connects himself to an Old Testament passage. And he was numbered among the transgressors. That's Isaiah 53. So he's saying this passage is about me and it's got to be fulfilled. And it's the suffering servant passage that, that upon him was laid the iniquity of everyone. And then it goes on. He goes on to say, for these things concerning me must have an end. Now, Jesus probably is expecting them to have some, at least some kind of a connection with numbered among the transgressors. Well, that's Isaiah 53 and suffering. Maybe he's wanting them to at least get some connection. But look what they do. This is so the disciples. So they said, Lord, look here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. <laughs> he's talking to them about his suffering. And he, before that, he says, sell your cloak. And a cloak was really important to them. You had your robe and you had your cloak. Your cloak was your coat. It was your, it was your, your blanket at night. It was really important. He says, if you don't have a sword, sell it. And, I mean, you don't, yeah, sell it and buy a sword. And then he tells them about his suffering. And they're like, we got two swords. And we know Peter has one of them, which is just fitting, isn't it? That Peter would have a sword. Because in the garden, when Jesus is arrested, Peter's like, I'll protect you. And he pulls out a sword and cuts off some poor servant boy's ear that Jesus has to step in and heal. So the transition is, you remember what it was like when I sent you out, and now there's something new that's happening. You're going to have to change. So let's break these down. What were the changes? First of all, he said, when I sent you out without money bag, knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? This is when he sends the 12 out and then later the 70 out. They, gotta, they go only to the house of Israel. Let me read you a passage. This is Matthew 10, 5 through 11 and 13 through 15. This is Jesus giving them the instruction when he's sending them out two by two. And that two by two is important, I think. And so he says, uh, the 12, these 12, he just listed the apostles. He says, these 12, Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go by the way of the Gentiles. That'll change. They're supposed to go to the Gentiles now, but don't go to the way of Gentiles and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. So he gives them this power. I also wonder here, did he give the power to Judas? It seems like he did. And Judas actually healed sick and cast out demons. No wonder maybe he thought he was right when he wasn't. Just because God may use you doesn't mean if you've got something wrong going in, on in your life that you're okay. There, there's no substitute for being right with God, even though you, you might think you're okay. Sometimes pastors fall into this problem. Their ministry is going really well and they think God wouldn't be using me like this if I had, if God didn't like what I was doing over here. But there's no substitute for being right with God, making sure you don't have some egregious sin in your life. Obviously he did, even though he did these miracles. Judas, 
And then it says, freely you've received, freely give. Provide neither gold, silver, nor copper in your money bags. Don't take any money with you. Um, nor bag for the journey. Nor, nor two tunics, only take one. Nor sandals, just one sandals, one staff. For the worker is worthy of his food. So wherever city you go in, they're going to take care of you. That is going to change. He says, um, now wherever city or town you enter, inquire who is worthy and stay there till you go out. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it's not worthy, let it return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than in the day of judgment for that city. Now, this is a particular ministry to the nation of Israel. They will reject Jesus. And so they were to shake the dust off that city, which must have been very dramatic. Now, if you're a missionary and you go to a city and they don't accept you, don't walk outside of the city and shake the dust off. There. Now, that's for this time, not for us now. Now we bring the gospel to people. This gospel has the power to save within the gospel. God's grace is in the gospel and has the power to save and people will hear it and they will respond. So now we get to the transition. This is the way it's been for you. But now I want you to know there's something different. First, then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it and a knapsack. So they have to provide for themselves now. If you're going to go out on the mission field, you have to provide for yourself. When we came to Tucson, which was a while ago, I had a business in Albuquerque. I was an auto upholsterer and I bought a machine with me and I got we got a house with the garage in it. And I was going to advertise in the thrifty nickel, the dandy dime and the quick quarter to be able to provide for my family. My daughter was one years old. My me and my wife had been married for three years at the time. Very new family. I had to provide for them. I couldn't expect God just to, you know, come out and provide for me. I needed to provide. Now, as it went, I didn't have to do that. Part of the reason was the church grew rapidly and I had a business in Albuquerque that was still running that for a while I was able to receive an income from. But it was still important to provide. And it's important for us to realize we need to provide. And even more so now that the texture of the world looks like the Bible says is going to be in the last days. And there are all these people prophesying the day when Jesus is going to come. And, and, and th that means we don't know when he comes. It doesn't mean you, don't, you know the two days he's going to come. It means you don't know the day. Jesus didn't come back in September on 26th and 27th, the Feast of Tabernacles this year. Although there are all kinds of people prophesying that was going to happen. The people like round numbers. We're about to be exactly 2,000 years from the resurrection of Jesus. You think you're not going to have a bunch of whack people saying things about the return of Christ. So don't listen to them. And in the past, when people have set dates, people did stop providing for them, stop providing for their family. Listen to what it says in 1 Timothy 5, 8. If anyone does not provide for his own and especially his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It, you are responsible for providing for yourself and providing for your family. And there, will, there, there is no excuse that you can say, well, I'm in ministry. I'm, I'm not providing for my family. No, in, now you have to provide for your, for your family. And if you can't do it while you're ministering, well, then go to part-time. Do what you got to do and then minister when you can. In 2 Corinthians 2, 14, similarly, Paul says, now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. 
and will not be burden, a burden to you. He said, I'm not going to come to you and you guys are going to have to take care of me. For I do not seek your, yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. So you don't expect, he was, I don't expect you guys to give me anything. I'm going to come. And he was a tent builder and he made tents while he was there. Like I was going to be an auto upholsterer builder when I was here until things got to their point. Then, and we lay up for our children and that's the point that he's making. So we have to provide. And that's part of what we're doing now. But he also has this statement, which is a really weird statement when you think about it. If you don't have a sword, sell it, your garment, which is really important, and buy a sword. So there, there's part of the church that is a pacifist part. Now, not generally here. You may be here and you may be a pacifist. It seems to be in the Anglican church, the Orthodox church, maybe parts of the Catholic church has pacifism that a Christian is never to do any kind of violence. Violence is never justified for, by, by a Christian. And the question is, is it? And what was Jesus saying here when he said, buy a sword? Now, a pacifist will often argue this passage and they'll say a couple of things. They'll say, well, Jesus was not trying to, to make a revolt. That's why he didn't tell them, go get your sword so you can revolt. In other words, they're building a straw man they can easily tear down. Saying that we who believe, and you'll see my, you kind of understand my view now, that there are, there are rare times that are very nuanced where we use violence as Christians. There, there, it will happen to some of us. We will have to use it. Uh, they'll say to us, well, Jesus wasn't trying to get a revolt. Well, I never said he was. So you're arguing against a, fa a fake argument. It's a straw man. Jesus, we know he wasn't trying to get a revolt. He was just telling them, you guys are going to go on the road now. You're going to need some self-protection. If, if somebody attacks you, you got a sword there, you're able to protect yourself. That's what he was telling them. That's what I believe he was telling them. And um, somebody else said that Jesus goes on to say, he will be numbered among the transgressors. He's quoting Isaiah 53. And someone else said, well, what Jesus was doing here was telling the disciples to get swords so that they would be transgressors. In other words, in his pacifistic view, he said that anybody that has a sword would have been a transgressor. And so Jesus then would be numbered among the transgressors because he told them to get swords. Once they got swords, now they're transgressors. So that that would be a fulfillment of the passage. And I listen to it and I go, wow, that is really dancing around uh, to, to, to defend your position, to try to explain away a passage. That's really dancing around it. First of all, the Bible says that no one can say when they are tempted, they are tempted by God. And if Jesus said, get a sword, and by that they were sinning, now Jesus would have told them to sin. It can't be the case. They're trying to explain away why Jesus would say, get a sword. He's telling them, just as you have to provide in this new environment, you're going to have to protect yourself. Now, let's talk about this a little bit, because I think it's important for us to have this defense. Is it okay for a Christian to ever use violence? What about when someone breaks into your home and threatens your life? What about when someone breaks into your home and threatens your property? Is it okay to be a soldier? Can you be a soldier? Can you be in another country? And can you shoot someone in that other country as a Christian? Can you be a police officer who may get into a gunfight and have to take the life of someone? Are these things justifiable according to the scriptures? Well, Exodus 22, two and three helps us with this idea. I know I'm, I'm already hearing the objections to using Exodus. That's the law. You're using the law to justify what you're saying. I'm, I'm going to the spirit of the law here. I'm not saying that we're under this law. I'm simply saying this is a theocracy and God has an understanding of nuance. These are, this is a very nuanced topic. On one side, you have people who will say, 
you should never ever be violent as a Christian. You should always be a pacifist. On the other side, you got some, you know, evangelical with 20 guns in his house. And he's like, come into my house. You better be right with Jesus because I'm going to send you to your maker. I'll take you down. You know, <laughs> so it's nuance between those two. All right. And I want to show you from this first verse, the nuance that God has. Listen to it. It's Exodus 22, three, uh, two and three. If a thief is found breaking in and he is struck, so he dies there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. So if a thief is breaking into your house, you strike him and he dies, then, hey, he shouldn't have been there. However, there is nuance. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck and dies, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. Now, we're not talking about a murderer. We're not talking about a raper. We're talking about a thief. So if a thief breaks into your house at night, because it's nuanced, you don't know why he's there. You don't know who's there. And you get up to protect your family and you strike him and he dies. There's no bloodshed. Even though he was there to steal something, you know, maybe he had your toaster and was heading out the door and you whacked him and you were just in your confusion. But in the daytime, you'd be able to see the toaster under his arm to see that he was leaving. So you would be held responsible. Now, this isn't different than our time. In our time, if, if, if someone breaks into your house and they're stealing something, and they're heading for the door and you shoot them as they're going out the door, then you're probably going to be prosecuted for that. And a jury is going to have to determine the nuance. God was determined in the law, but he's saying, so we've got to have nuance in, in what we're doing. You can defend your life, but you can't defend your toaster. That's my toaster. You shouldn't have stole it. Right? So that's what's happening here. And then he says, going back to the thief, he should make full restitution. He's got to make restitution for what he took which for them meant if you stole something you had to repay fourfold. There's a penalty to it. And he ha if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. They didn't have prisons in their day. So when you stole something, then you were sold as a person into slavery. And this is where you find slavery in the Old Testament. And there's more to it than this, and we'll cover it in a study at some point. But it was not antebellum slavery. People will look at the Old Testament, see slavery there and go, this is antebellum slavery. No, antebellum slavery was a particularly horrible type of slavery. And it wasn't just in antebellum, it wasn't just in the South. It was all over the world at a certain point. England stopped slavery before we did, but it was all over the world. And that particular kidnapping slavery was brutal. And, and it, that, that's not what we find in the Old Testament. In fact, there were a lot of protections towards the slaves that you could become if you were caught stealing and didn't have anything to repay for it. Now, self-defense, especially deadly force, is to be used carefully and thoughtfully. This also gives us some thoughts on the difference between life and property. And if, even if someone comes in to take your life and you don't have to take their life, you don't take their life just because you can take it. In other words, if you get the drop on them, you don't have to shoot them. Right. It's not it's not like, you know what? You're in a place you shouldn't have been, buddy. I've been waiting for an opportunity to use my 40 cal. And here it comes. 20 cal, 40 cal, 40 cal. Don't want to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, Nehemiah 4, 14 is a very interesting case. Again, this is the, the law and they're sent to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They're not sent back to the land of Israel to fight. They're sent to rebuild the walls but they're attacked by the people that live there now. They don't want them to rebuild it. There's enemies that are there. And so Nehemiah has to address this. He tells them, build the wall with your trowel in one hand and your sword in the other. 
But that's not the passage I want to read to you. Here, listen to what Nehemiah says to them. And I looked and I arose, said to the nobles, to the leaders and to the people, do not be afraid of them. These people that are attacking you, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord is great and awesome. He's our first sense of protection all the time, right? And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So they had a responsibility to make sure that their brethren, their wives, their children, their houses were safe. And I do though, I think that applies, not because it's, it's not under the law. He's telling them in a certain situation, you're being attacked, you've got a job to do. Now defend yourself and your family in the midst of that. That self-defense is okay. Now self-defense is not petty. And the verse that people will use is turn the other cheek. Don't, you know, here's what the, the passage says. This is Matthew 5, 39 through 41. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. So that's what the pacifist will quote. Don't resist an evil person. You're, you're telling me that if somebody breaks into my house and wants to rape my wife, I'm, to, I'm not supposed to resist an evil person. She's in the back room. Go ahead. I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do. I don't think that's what he's saying. He says, don't resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other hand to him. This is more persecution. This is more an insult. Your self-defense is not to be petty. If someone is, is, is physically attacking you with insults and slaps, that's one thing. If somebody pulls out a bat to bash in the side of your head, you don't turn to them the other side of your head. That's not what it's saying. But you don't want to be petty. You want to, this is the extreme. There's no other option. There's no other out. This is what has to be done. He goes on to say, if they want to take your tunic, give them your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go two. This is in a particular world where the Romans had the right, a Roman soldier had the right to, to apprehend people's property for themselves to use if they needed it. And um, so he says, don't do that. But, but don't use that verse to say you can't have self-defense because that's petty. It's a slap. It's not attacking the person. In Acts 22, Paul defends himself. He doesn't defend himself physically but he defends himself. He's going to be scourged. And that's, a cat, that's 39 stripes with a cat of nine tails. And Paul don't want that. He's been scourged before. He's been beaten with rods. He don't want it. So Paul says, well, it says here in Acts 22, 25 and 26, and as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who was a Roman and uncondemned? He knew that was against the law. You couldn't scourge an uncondemned Roman. And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander saying, take care what you do. This man is a Roman. So Paul wasn't willing just to go through something. He was willing to defend himself, even though at this point it's, it's saying, I've got the rights here as a Roman. He defended himself. Now, what about, this is the other thing people will say. Well, what about Peter pulling out the sword and Jesus saying, put your sword away, Peter. All who are going to live by the sword will die by the sword. That, that certainly tells us we shouldn't be using a weapon in any way because he told Peter to put away the sword. But let's go back to the context. Jesus is being arrested. When you are arrested, if you pull out a gun, you are going to die. That's what Jesus is saying. He, Jesus is being arrested. Peter pulls out his sword. He doesn't go after a soldier because he probably can't take him because he's a fisherman, but he sees this servant of the high priest. He's like, ah, tries to get his head and gets his ear instead. And Jesus says, put the sword away for all who live by the sword, die by the sword. The all that's there when Jesus says that, and this is uh, Matthew 26, 52. Let me just read it so you can get the words of Jesus. 
But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He's not saying anyone who defends themselves will perish by it. But when you are being arrested, put your sword away. You kill this guy, they're going to execute you, Peter, is what he's saying. This is not the time to use the sword. I told you to get a sword earlier. This is not the time. So to use that as a verse to say we should be pacifist is not a good verse to use. What about being in the armed forces or being a police officer? Is that okay for a Christian to do? What about when you have to shoot someone? And some of you guys have been in the armed forces and you've had to take someone's life. Some of you guys have been on the police force and maybe had to pull your gun and had to make a decision on whether or not you would take someone's life. Well, Romans chapter 13 deals with this where it talks about the soldier, the peacekeeper, being one of God's ministers and that we are supposed to obey them, obey the laws of the land, it says. So if you're living in a state that allows you to carry a gun, you can carry a gun. If you're living in a state that doesn't allow you to carry a gun, you've got to obey the law of the land. And you say, well, I don't like that. It makes me vulnerable. Well, then move to another state. And so everybody's doing, they're moving to Texas, right? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we obey the law of the land. But talking about the peacekeepers, the soldiers, God says this in Romans 13, 4. For he is God's minister. The word minister is servant. For he is God's servant to do good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So God allows this servant of his to have a sword and he doesn't bear it in vain, meaning he uses that sword to be able to keep the peace and protect them. And it's okay. He goes on to say, for he is God's minister, again, an avenger to execute wrath on he who practices evil. So we need to have police officers and soldiers who will take up the sword to be able to defend our nation or to defend our city. And those who practice evil will have to contend with them. Now, as someone in the army, you may be given a command you don't agree with. That may happen as a police officer as well. And you may have to make a decision. I'm not doing this. And if you do that, you'll probably pay a price by disobeying the order. But you have the right to say, I object to this. I don't think it's right. You don't have to do it. And as a soldier, you might find yourself in a situation like that. And if you are, then you've just got to end up doing what's right. You've got to do what's right overall. And, and, but it is okay to be in the armed forces. I get this question a lot. You know, what about a police officer? What about, a, you know, who killed somebody? What about a soldier who did? Well, if they're defending our nation, then it's okay for them to be there. And I realize a lot of soldiers carry a lot of guilt with them after they do kill someone, probably police officers as well. And um, the Bible does make provisions for that. Now, just a couple more things. I'm done with this section and I'm out of time, which, ah! Um, I should have taken these four verses in two studies. Um, Ezekiel 33, 6 talks about the watchman on the wall. This is an analogy that you and I have responsibility for the souls of people that are around us. We need to warn people that there is a hell, there is a separation from God, and if you don't come to Christ, you will go there. And this is the analogy. He says, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people will not, were not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he has taken away in iniquity, but his blood will be required of the watchman. So the watchman's watching. Somebody comes in with a sword. He doesn't blow the trumpet. Somebody's killed by that, that person coming in with a sword that killed them by iniquity, but the watchman has responsibility. 
This tells us and helps us to understand the Good Samaritan Law. That, and there are Good Samaritan Laws now because there have been people who stood by while other people were attacked. There's a passage in um, Psalms 82.4 that says, deliver the poor and needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. So if you are standing on a street corner and somebody attacks a woman right in front of you, depending on your skills, you have some responsibility. At least you could scream and holler and get some attention to it. If you're an MMA fighter, then go to town. Take care of the guy. And I say that because of a viral video where a UFC guy, there was a guy attacking another guy and the UFC guy went in, boom, and it was like, got him on the ground and pinned him and there it was. It was all said and done. Somebody came, do you need help? He's like, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I don't need help. So we do have responsibility to defend the weak, to defend them from the wicked. And if something is happening, I'm not saying that, you know, if you're a 95 year old gal that you got to get in there and grapple with the person. But I am saying that screaming and hollering and yelling uh, to, to be able to at least do something is part of our responsibility. So the summary of all of this is, yes, it is appropriate at times for a Christian to use violence, but it is rare and it is nuanced. All right. Now, this last section, I have no time for um, verse 37. For I say to you that it is written must uh, still be accomplished in me. So he's saying, I'm going to fulfill these passages. And the suffering of Jesus was well documented in the Old Testament, which is very powerful for us as Christians. We should be encouraged and strengthened because people will say, well, Jesus just got the wrong people mad, got crucified. And the disciples were like, well, let's say that he died for the sins of the people. It was well told beforehand so that God would know it clearly. And this is Isaiah 53 when he says, and he was numbered among the transgressors. This is the night before he's, he's crucified. He will hang before two, between two thieves. That is most likely the fulfillment of the transgressors. Some will say he was a friend of sinners and that was it. But it's, he's talking, this was going to be fulfilled. He's not going to hang out with sinners anymore until he's crucified between two of them. That's the fulfillment of this. And so he's saying, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. This is a verse that is neglected by synagogues. They have their own liturgy, and that's probably not the right word to use for a synagogue, all right? If you go to a Lutheran church or a Catholic church, all Lutheran churches read the same passages on the same day. That's their liturgy. And uh, the synagogues are similar. They don't read Isaiah 53. There's a guy who goes around Jerusalem reading Isaiah 53 to, to Jewish people, and they're shocked when they read it. He, he videotapes their responses because they've never heard it. And it's so obviously Jesus. It's, it should be a great encouragement to us. And I really wish I had some time to cover it. And we will cover this topic uh, a little bit later on. But let me read you just two verses, Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death he was numbered with the transgressors. That's what Jesus said is talking about him. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors. Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Then there's a whole first person account of crucifixion in Psalms 22, which is absolutely amazing and should give you nothing but confidence that you are serving something, God, and a work that was foretold in the Old Testament, which is part of the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures and rose from the dead according to the scriptures. These things are foretold. 
Three things in closing. Sorry to wrap up that last part so quickly. I should have done self-defense less. Number one, the foretold suffering of Jesus should encourage us greatly. We should, we should know those passages. We should be able to defend it. It ought to be one of the reasons that when someone says, why are you a Christian? Because the things that Jesus went through were foretold and they happened. There, there almost literally are no scholars that say that Jesus wasn't crucified under Pontius Pilate and his, and his tomb was empty. Almost all scholars, there may be an outlier, but almost all scholars will agree to that. And these things are foretold in the scriptures, which is pretty amazing. Number two, we have the right to defend ourselves, but not to vengeance. In the moment where the defense needs to take place, we can defend ourselves, but we cannot take vengeance on someone. And self-defense needs to be measured. If in your self-defense, you don't have to take a life, then don't take a life. And I realize that things happen quickly sometimes, but still, it should be measured. And number three, change is inevitable, but know that Jesus is with you in every season of your life. Even if you're going down a season you didn't plan, or if you plan to go down a season and it's not working out like you thought, Jesus is still there with you. Rarely are marriage expectations, you're getting ready to get married, let me just give you another little, you know, Rarely are marriage expectations met immediately. Usually after a couple of years of marriage, you're thinking, what did I do? What have I done? <laughs> and to those people, when I counsel them, I say, give it time. Give it time. It'll come around. All right. Right now, you're just going through the beginning that's a little bit tough. So Jesus is with you in the midst of all that. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have all of these passages that help us to understand self-defense as opposed to pacifism and that we believe that Christians are, are not supposed to be pacifists, but we also believe that we're not supposed to deliberately murder someone just because we could be justified in what we're doing. We want to be those who bring peace, those who bring life. And um, Lord, if anyone here is ever in a confrontation where they have to make that decision, we pray that the wisdom of the Spirit would be there with them. Thank you for our soldiers and our police officers that protect our nation. We are grateful for their service. And um, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.